Hello everybody, I'm Dwayne Mancini and welcome to another episode of the Project MedTech Podcast. If you need anything from us or would like to suggest a future guest, you can email us at info at projectmedtech.com. If you enjoy this podcast, please subscribe and leave a review and you can always visit our website www.projectmedtech.com or follow us on LinkedIn. If you're enjoying this content, don't forget to check out our other podcasts by searching MedTech Money on your favorite podcast platform or by heading to our website. MedTech Money is an interview style podcast focused on demystifying raising and investing capital for MedTech startups. This episode of the podcast is brought to you by Galen Data. Galen Data is the cloud for medical device makers. The Galen Cloud provides a configurable platform for device to cloud connectivity that is compliant to FDA, HIPAA, and CE Mark standards. Built on 40 plus years of collective experience developing compliance systems in the medical device industry, the company's goal is to make medical medical device cloud connectivity available to all at a fraction of the cost while shaving months off the development timeline. In this episode of the podcast, our guest Kyle Rose from Rook Quality System and I discussed the FDA's ISO 13485 transition plan, when it was announced, what it looks like, the differences between 21 CFR Part 820 versus ISO 1345, the importance of a risk-based approach and quality, updates on the MDR and current trends, could the FDA move towards requiring more clinical data from medical device manufacturers? If regulatory and quality were the only factors in determining your global get-to-market strategy, where would you go? And so much more. So without further ado, my discussion with Kyle Rose. Okay, Kyle, welcome to the podcast. Awesome, thanks for having me. I'm excited to, to circle back and chat with you some more about Rook and, and new developments in the quality side. Yeah, actually, I should say welcome back. So um, you're joining a short but growing list uh, as we <laughs> hit episode 80 and 90 um, of repeat guests. But uh, so, so today, um, we'll just jump right into it, right? Well, actually, no. Take a quick pause, just in case people hadn't listened to the uh, previous episode. Brief introduction to, to who you yep. are, what Rook is, and just maybe a little bit of the background on Rook. Yeah, for sure. Um, so I'm president of, of Rook Quality Systems. My name's Kyle Rose. Um, Rook Quality is a consulting firm. I started um, going on 10 years, right? Uh, March 2012 was our official start date, so right at our 10-year anniversary, uh, which is great. But um, So we help medical device companies with their quality system. So our, our main goal is to help small startups create a quality system, make it efficient so they can still use it and then add on to it as they grow. Our team is very hands-on with actually creating quality system, creating the records within the quality system. So your design history file, your risk file, um, your supplier assessment, all of these things we kind of help complete as the product and the company grows all the way to kind of post-market activities, full validation of facilities, all of that. Right now, our team has grown quite a bit. So we're up uh, at 25 quality engineers, the majority in the US. We also have a small branch in Taiwan. And like I said, our main focus is startups. We also work with big clients as well. So really, any type of quality need, big or small, um, you just need more hands on deck type of thing. That's, that's where Rook comes in to help kind of maintain your quality system, improve, get to new markets, all those types of things. And yeah, so um, we've 
really um, grown through kind of remote work as well. So um, being remote has allowed us to continue to support clients all over the U.S., international, um, really been a, a big focus for us as well. Um, we have now 25 employees, um, 25 quality engineers. So people dedicated to supporting clients all over the world. We have a big focus on software devices, and AI and ML type devices, SAMD. Um, so really involved in that type as well. We're starting to do a little bit more regulatory work as well. So if you have a device and you're unsure how to get to market, we can support that as well. So really um, kind of overarching widespread quality and, and regulatory support for all types of companies, but our main focus has always been startups. Yeah, that's that's fantastic. And, and just for those listening, so Kyle's previous episode was episode 59. And then um, he mentioned the Taiwan branch. That was episode 57 with Andrew Wu, um, who I believe is located in Taiwan. Is that right, Kyle? He is. Yeah, he's he's the branch manager of our Taiwan branch. He does a lot of our software documentation. Our, he's our lead software consultant as well really um, detailed and technical background, uh, able to support all types of software devices through early documentation, buildup of your software device, testing, and then regulatory support as well. So he's filed 510Ks, pre-submissions, all of those for all types of software devices. Awesome. Um, so, so Kyle, you know, you had reached out and 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 we were talking about what we wanted to talk about on this episode and you mentioned the fda iso 13485 transition plan merger can you just kind of give a brief intro into to what we're talking about here um when that transition plan was announced and and what we know about it yeah yeah i think this is something that we've seen a lot of interest in that's why i wanted to jump on and, and discuss it with you we've had a lot of people reach out to us. We included it in one of our predictions for 2022, and it came out pretty quickly. So uh, I think it was about two and a half, three weeks ago. So late February, the FDA proposed their amendments to the current quality system regulations in 21 CFR Part 820 and how they're going to merge this with 1345. This is something that we've known was coming. They talked about it a lot. In, 2021 and, and push back the date a few times. Um, but now they have their first proposed amendments on how they're going to merge these regulations, um, as well as a high level overview of the timeline. So um, a lot of companies have reached out to us interested in this, um, a lot of feedback from our initial prediction blog. And I think it's going to be a really good thing in the overall med device quality system scope going forward. Okay, can can you explain the differences as of right now on <clears throat> on maybe some of those regulations? You know, how, how does how does this update to ISO thirteen four eighty five affect you know current devices that were that, that were approved in the U.S. versus in Europe, and and maybe just kind yeah. of give us some high level differences yeah. and. Yeah, definitely. So high level, um, FDA has their standalone quality system regulations. This is QSR and it's outlined in 21 CFR Part 20. They're available online. And this is what the FDA requires that companies do if they're selling in the U.S. Um, these were originally or these were published, the current version in 1996. So pretty old at this point. Um, ISO 1345 is international regulations for medical device quality systems. So pretty much everywhere else in the world uses this as the backbone for their quality system. These were 
recently published and updated in 2016. So they're much more modern, much more up-to-date, cover things like software devices and a more risk-based approach to the quality system. So the FDA looked at kind of the global landscape and, and realized that it would be good to merge these, have a more streamlined approach that aligns with the rest of the world. So they announced this plan to harmonize the two standards and have finally put the first information out on how this is going to happen. Uh, for companies that are currently in the US and selling international, they have to meet both regulations. So they have to meet both the FDA, QSR, as well as 1345. So they have to maintain quality systems and quality records and design files that meet both. So it can be kind of double work. You know, there's ways to streamline it and kind of merge them together, but there's still kind of the hassle of maintaining both. So this harmonized regulation should make it easier for everybody to have kind of one central standard that meets FDA requirements, but also meets the requirements for the majority of the rest of the world as well. Okay. And and so I guess for for to put this in basic terms, I mean, this would be like the U.S. finally adopting the metric system. Correct. Yeah. Exactly. Okay. So, yeah, you know, it, it makes sense. These are up to date, easy, yep. and a very thorough description of the quality system. And so from what I can tell, the majority of feedback has been good for companies that are doing both. They love this. For companies that are just using FDA, it might be a little work to get up to speed, but I think the majority of the feedback has been positive. Sure. So, so is there any, um, I mean, I guess if you're, if you're just practicing in the U S um, so, so I guess, let me just for, so I can understand this. If you are going for current day with the new MDR, if you're going for submission in the U S or the EU current date, it's much easier in the U S based on the MDR, right? Or maybe there's less confusion or hurdles around that, or even keeping a product on the market is, was that the same with quality systems? Was, was the quality system, uh, was, was there less, or was it easier to build a quality system in, in the U S versus you know, through ISO 13485, or is it more or less the work is just going to be to get updated. It's not necessarily going to affect how hard it is if you're building a brand new right now. Yeah, I think I think it's a little easier and uh, with the 1345, if you can. Oh, the, okay. The 1345 okay. has a better definition of what exactly you need to do. Um, more descriptive, whereas 820 uh, is more broad and, and FDA uses guidance documents and, and things like that to provide information to supplement the standards. But I think having a, a better roadmap on exactly what they're looking for helps a lot of companies, especially those that are going through it the first time, just reading the, the QSR can be very broad and hard to say, how do we actually implement this? Where I think 1345 gives you a, a little bit better of a plan on, on what you need to have, as well as ways that you can kind of streamline your process using this kind of risk-based approach to quality. So that's one of the big things in 1345 is, you know, if you are a smaller company, you, you might have to do as much because it's a, or a lower risk device. You can use a risk-based approach to your quality system. So that I think really helps smaller companies, companies doing it the first time, um, really right-size their quality system. 
Okay, so does this kind of go with the whole theme of the FDA moving toward towards that risk based approach and in, in a number of of different uh, areas? Uh, I'm guessing I'm thinking of like ISO um, 10993 Part One, right, uh, for biocompatibility of a medical device in 2020. That really moved yeah. towards you know that risk based approach. Um, is that kind of similar to what you're seeing where maybe this ISO 1345 exactly. is from? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I think okay. that kind of whole theme of risk-based approach for your quality system, your testing, um, your clinical plans, things like that yep. is really moving through the industry. Um, so really helps companies that might have a lower risk device where they don't have to do as much as a, you know, a class three or high risk device. So um, I think that approach is now being moved into the quality system as well, where it's already been touched a little bit on the regulatory side as well. Okay. Now were people, so um, biocompatibility was, was, was my, is, well, yeah. was my thing. Um, so I know that we were practicing a risk-based approach all the way back to when I had started at NAMSA, which was like 2015, 2016. Is that similar to what was happening in the U.S. in terms of quality system as well? Were people already practicing yeah. you know, ISO 1345, I guess? I think a lot were with, you know, rook quality uh, and, and the things we've done personally. Uh, we've always had a merged QMS. Every quality system we create for every company um, in the U.S. has been merged both ISO and QSR. So we've always done it this way. We think it provides a much more... Um, balanced approach, um, a better approach to your quality system and then quality devices. So we've always done it this way. Um, it's rare that we see a company that just has FDA um, and, you know, we'll encourage them to incorporate 1345, even if they don't go through formal certification. We've always, you know, really recommended to have this more comprehensive approach to quality that does allow for more of a risk-based approach as well. Okay, great. Um so we haven't really we we it was announced in late february we're recording this in the middle of march um what is the transition plan is there a date that says hey if you are a manufacturer of a u.s medical device uh you have to be your quality system has to be up to date to iso 1345 by x date what's that plan look like yeah, so they're currently receiving feedback and comments, and there is a time in May where they're going to have kind of like a, a town hall discussion on this proposed harmonization. Um, based on that feedback, they would then publish this ruling um, for the amended quality system regulations. So the new ones are QMSR, Quality Management System Regulations. Um, so they would publish this and then um, transition timeline I would say it's in the two to three year range. I think that's something that we still don't know exactly. Um, and one of the key unknowns, uh, I don't think they would make it super quick um, just because I think it does affect quite a few companies. Uh, and on the FDA side, they also have to train their auditors and their team as well. So um, we're looking at everything to be formally approved through the government and sometime in 2023, I would say summer 2023, and then a transition timeline of, of two to three years. Okay. And, and this shouldn't cause as many waves as 
the MDR did, right? Because most of these, most of the large manufacturers and, and most companies that have had products on the market for, you know, I don't know, uh, commercialized for two to three years, they're probably on the market in a country that requires ISO 13485. Is that a fair assumption? Yeah, I, I agree that, that most companies, if they are selling anywhere outside the US, they're already complying with 1345. So this really should make it a little bit easier for them to have kind of a more of a harmonized approach and there's less of kind of duplicating things in the quality system. Uh, for those that, that don't, it will be kind of a burden. The FDA, you know, has taken that into account. Um, but just like we learned with MDR, you know, the better you start trying to work towards this, the better. Because <laughs> everybody said with MDR, oh, it's five years away, you know, and then it's <laughs> popped up and everybody like, oh, we're all behind, right? So um, right. I, I think it should be easier than the, the MDR transition because there was a, a lot going on there, not just the quality system side um, and other issues with auditors and things like that. Um, but I think it's still something that the bigger companies will need to have a, a dedicated plan to address, right? So you can't just say, oh, it's three years away. You know, we'll worry about it in two and a half years. I think having a more proactive approach is definitely recommended. Awesome. Um, so is, is there anything else? I, I actually, I, I kind of want to ask about MDR and, and how that is going or how you're seeing that. But, but before we, we move on from this ISO 13485 transition, is there anything else you, you want to add? Any major differences um, that people need to be prepared for? Or is there anything else I missed? No, I think, I think the main thing is that it will be updates. If you are currently just working in QSR FDA regulations, there will be quite a few updates that, that are needed to your quality system to meet this. So um, the FDA will provide kind of a plan. I'm sure there'll be guidance documents. Another great tool um, that companies can look at is the MDSAP audit approach document. So MDSAP is this program FDA and, and a few other countries created uh, in 2015 timeframe. Um, and it already aligns FDA and ISO, and it really gives a great detail on what auditors will look at and want to see in your files and your records and your quality system. So if companies have detailed questions or are not sure how to kind of start this process, I think that's a great approach. Um, it has already done a lot of the legwork. It goes into great detail. I think this audit approach documents over 200 pages long. Um, so it really gives a great foundation of, of what you'll need to do to comply with both in the future. So I think that's a great tool. Um, only other question we've seen a good bit is if, you know, if you comply with the QMSR, the, the harmonized regulation, will you have ISO certification? And unfortunately you won't. So the FDA won't be giving you cert certification. You'll still have to get an ISO audit to be able to sell in, in the rest of the world. So it'll make it a little easier. Your QMS will already be up to date, but you'll still have to pay to get, get through ISO certification in the future. Okay, great. Um, and then, so, so yeah, so the MDR, um, <clears throat> last time we talked, um, it was pretty early on in, in, in the rollout phase. Um, I guess just from, from your perspective of, of being a quality and, and regulatory expert, um, you know, how have you seen that going? Uh, you know, what's the biggest updates? What are things that, you know, trends, I guess you're seeing with, with clients you're supporting, is there anything major that is kind of, um, 
you know, kind of come to light now that it's been rolled out for, uh, what, a year or two now? Yeah, I think, yeah, it's going right out a year, right? Because they pushed it back um, to 2021 originally due to COVID, and, and now we're, we're approaching uh, one year in May. So, yeah, I think um, some of the initial headlines that came out is it still apply. So, you know, one of the first really things that apply was that there's not a lot of auditor availability. So, you know, if you are a new company looking to get through MDR, you're looking at six months to a year, right? If you try to reach out to a notified body and get your audits, there still is a, a huge backlog, which is unfortunate, right? There's just not enough auditors, not enough notified bodies to get these things completed. So if you are planning to have MDR in 2022, you should already kind of be working into those conversations um, with a notified body. So start to schedule audits, start to schedule technical file review, uh, because there is still a huge delay um, with that. Whereas, you know, a few years ago with MDD, you could do that in a few months. Now it's it's six months to a year with some of the bigger companies. Okay. Are you seeing that startup companies um, or I guess companies in general are shying away from Europe and saying, hey, you know what, if because before, remember, I mean, it used to be you go to Europe first, then you come to the yeah. US. Are, are you kind of seeing that that flip or in and, and I'm guessing the answer is yes, but are you even seeing it so much that maybe Europe isn't even the secondary market anymore? Yeah, I, I think we are seeing um, definitely a switch. I think what you said about going to Europe definitely was an easier path, especially if you had like a new technology and didn't have a clear predicate, then going to Europe made a lot of sense. You could get your certification, you could have a sound rationale for your testing, get that through your technical documentation, uh, technical file review, and get out of the market with a lot easier of a process, right? You're not defining any new product codes or any new pathways for the FDA, much more streamlined. Um, I, I think that still applies a little bit where if you have a new technology and there's not a, a great path for you in the US, I still think there are paths for you to go um, to MDR first, it really just depends on the technology. One of the other things that we've seen a lot with the MDR transition that is kind of catching some companies is that they really, there's not kind of the partial documentation review. Everything has to be completely done. So all of your validations, your clinical trials, if that applied to your device, those have to be completely finished before you're able to start your technical documentation review. So in the past with MDD, you could get away with kind of doing some of those after you receive CE mark. Um, that's not really the case anymore with MDR. All of your validations, trials, um, all of that information has to be complete. Your technical file has to be 100% finished before you're able to start your technical documentation review. So with startups, that is tricky, right? You might um, delay you a little bit. Um, but you have to make sure you have a plan to wrap up all your verification, all your validation, put it all in the right format for your technical file, and then you can start the technical documentation review. So some cases can be a juggling act, right? Trying to get scheduling, you know, how do we plan six months in advance? 
for something when we're not sure things are changing with our product and our, our timeline as well. Um, so um, that, that part has been a little tricky um, for startups and companies we've supported as well. Interesting. So I'm curious, I don't know if I've ever actually ever asked anyone in terms of uh, the MDR. We spend a lot of time talking about how much of a change it it really is um and and you know the shift in where innovation is now going first and there just seems like there's a lot of downstream effects and and most of the time we're talking about the negative ones right but there 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 must be uh some type of positive idea behind why this was updated. You know, I just look at like, like for instance, what we actually talked about today with, with the FDA, you know, yeah. adopting ISO, thir- ISO 13485. While there's some change around that, you can very, you could very easily see the intent of why they did that, you know, the positives behind that. Um, and while it might cause some short term, um, angst, I guess, you know, you can see long term, hey, this is a really good move. Um, Do you I mean, MDR, what what is the for all those folks who are who are feeling this this initial wrath of of pain? What's the positive to this? What's the hey, five years from now, I'll be looking at this and saying, oh, that was a good move. Yeah, I think it's they've really kind of looked at gaps and issues with their process and wanted to have a very um, detailed and you know quality focused approach to how to improve medical devices for everyone you know, obviously in the eu so um they they really kind of started from the ground up and really put a, a heavy emphasis on kind of the post-market surveillance and the post-market data required to keep your device on the market. So um, if you got a device on the market and didn't continue to test it and had complaints and had poor feedback, in some cases you could keep selling that device where the MDR and the the new regulations are really trying to uh, improve overall quality, make sure you are collecting data and collecting feedback from the users, uh, the doctors, the patients, you know, both to make sure you have a safe state-of-the-art device that is of high quality. Um, So really trying to remove any devices that aren't up to that highest standard. So um, that I think has been the key thing. And it's really a jump from kind of where things were, honestly, but um, the overall goal is to improve patient safety, improve compliance. So, it's a harder bar to meet, but I think it's it's definitely for the better of everyone. So that's yeah. the, the main focus, I think, of MDR is really, really diving into the post-market activities, the data, the plans, how you're addressing this, how you're ensuring that your customers, users are getting a device they need um, and provides positive outcomes. Okay. Any reason for people to be not nervous or worried that i guess one of the two probably both nervous or worried that that the fda could could move in somewhat of a similar direction you know i mean i guess the background of this question is i mean most devices that are um 
what, what's the correct term in terminology approved what's a 510k yeah cleared yeah. cleared cleared, so, cleared. Yeah. so i mean most devices in the u.s that get that go through the fda are 510k cleared right so they don't require clinical data and most yeah. don't have any clinical data at the time of submission. I forget the stat, but it's, it's not, it's not like it's like 50%. Yeah. I mean, yeah. it's something like 80 or 90%. Yeah. Um, any chance the FDA could ever move towards, you know, requiring a little more clinical data, clinical data, or, or what's the current requirements for companies on post-market surveillance? Yeah, I mean, I think, like you said, the majority of, of devices, class one and class two, don't require clinical trials. Um, and if they do, it's kind of a, a one-off thing, right? Where you, you won't require to have updates to your, your clinical trials or updates to your, your post-market clinical follow-up activities. So um, there are requirements for post-market surveillance in the U.S., but not nearly as stringent as in the EU. So... Um, I, I think it is kind of a, a current gap in the FDA's current regulations that, that they don't have as, as sound of a post-market surveillance. So I think this is something that would start to potentially get looked at in the future. I think, you know, harmonizing with 1345, like we originally started, is kind of uh, a move towards a more global approach to quality. Uh, and I think that that is something that could definitely be improved on the FDA side as well, right? So. Um, there are a bunch of reports a few years ago about, you know, devices staying on the market with tons of adverse events and, and not much changing about um, their clearance or, or, or ability to stay on the market. And I think the FDA is going to look at that and try to find ways to either be more proactive with audits or post-market surveillance requirements, things like that. Uh, I think it definitely can be a gap. Um, especially just the way that the FDA set up. They don't require annual audits. They don't do all these things that are done international typically. So uh, I think it is something that, that can be improved and hopefully that's, that's in the works in the next few years. Yeah, hey, it's really interesting. I mean, I, I've brought this up sometimes to to other people and you know, they're like, well, that's not in the FDA's bandwidth or or that's not within the fda's jurisdiction and 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 they'll bring up things like this and uh in in my head i mean the fda is focused on uh, safety and effectiveness right yeah. uh, and so the more clinical data you have the better conclusions you can draw to effectiveness so uh yeah. i don't see yeah, I think that's a big thing for me. I think there has been a really good recent example of this. So with all the, the COVID devices that were released, specifically diagnostics under the emergency use authorization, the FDA did require additional post-market data. So they would give you the emergency authorization, and then they did require additional data. So once your diagnostic was in the market, you had to submit additional information on, on how the device was performing um, in the post-market real world um, environment. And, and that's been great, right? It's, it's affected some devices that have been removed. Some devices had to make tweaks and, and reapply for their EUA. Um, but the FDA has been very proactive with these COVID diagnostic devices and their requirements for post-market data and post-market surveillance. Yeah, very interesting. Um... Yeah, it's it's. Uh, I don't I don't I don't ask this to create fear, <laughs> right? Or or even or even speculate. But um, 
it's something, you know, just to be aware of, um, you know, as, as a medical device company, um, because I think one of the big things, like you mentioned at the very top of this discussion about MDR is everybody, people even knew it was coming and they still delayed their response (laughs) to it. Right. And, and, um, it got a lot of people in, you know, a world of hurt because of the negligence and just, I guess, ignorance of, of, of dealing with it. So, um, if people can prepare for it in in the U S even though nothing has been announced or said, or even in the works to my knowledge, right. Um, it's still good to know. Um, awesome. So what about, um, I'm curious to, we're kind of jumping back in ISO 1345 because I, I wrote a question down. I forgot to, to ask it, you know, so this is what is practice in Europe. Is it, is it the same for China and Japan as well? Yeah. So the majority of countries around the world also use 1345 as their kind of backbone for the quality system. So okay. uh, China and Japan, um, Japan's actually part of the NDSAP program. Um, oh, Okay. South America, the majority of the Middle East, um, Africa, so Canada, a lot of the majority of countries around the world use 1345 okay. as um, the backbone for their quality system. So having this, especially if you're a new company that, you know, just getting your first device to the FDA, um, having to comply with this is good because it'll most likely open you up for other markets pretty easily. You'll be able to get your certification to ISO, have a high level of confidence that your your QMS mm-hmm. in files meet the requirements once you're aligned to the QMSR, and then you know really easily expand to additional markets as well. Okay, so I'm going to ask a pretty broad question here. Um, it's something that uh, we just focused on at our startup symposium last week, and it was okay, hey, you're a company here in Cleveland, Ohio. Um, you know, you get your FDA approval, you go through that process. Things are going great from a commercialization standpoint. Now you're going to expand to other markets. Assuming that uh, commercial size is all equal, right? That's not, we, we all know, you know, the commercial size of other countries is a massive player and where you go next. But yep. assuming it was just regulatory and quality, is are there specific countries that you would say, hey, because you have approval in the US, definitely look at Canada next, definitely look at Australia. Um, are, are there easy ones that you say, hey, if you've done the, the, you know, the um, requirements here, it's probably fairly easy for you to go to these next so many countries. Do you, is there anything broad you can kind of say about that? Yeah, is it I, I think most generally it is like the Middle East. It is South America. Okay. It's pretty easy to get into. Um, the EU, obviously, with MDR requires additional information on top of, you know, your ISO or FDA clearance. Canada additionally requires additional information um, through the MedSAP program. Those audits are, are pretty in-depth, so those take the longest out of all of the kind of different options. MBSAP audits typically, you know, three days, three or four days for a very small company up to seven, 
days for a bigger company. So um, those are, are one of the slower ones. Um, don't have a ton of experience in, in China, but uh, I do know with, with Japan, those can be somewhat straightforward with ISO, but they also have some additional regulatory requirements as well. Okay. And, and, and what about um, Australia? Is that something you've seen at all or no? Yeah. So Australia is also part of MedSAP. So you can do it that way. You can also do it if you have a CE mark. So there's a kind of two phase approach. It also depends on, on classification. So um, classification of your device isn't kind of the same around the world. In some cases, mm -hmm. if you have a class two device, it could be a class one or a class three or four in other markets, right? So typically other markets have a four level classification. Um, we've seen some devices that were a class one in the US, so no 510K required, and they were class three in Canada and other markets, really. So it, it depends on your regulatory classification, um, sterile versus non-sterile electronic or software, all those things have different interpretations on risk around the world. So um, that's something you definitely want to look at before you really set your sights on a, a new country is what is the classification of your device? And then, you know, what is required on the audit perspective. Okay. So you brought up the four, four classifications in most of the world, but, but only three in the U S what's the benefit to only having three or four? I mean, why <laughs> it's another one of these things where, you know, we, we joked about at the beginning metric system, you know, yeah. uh, I mean, why, why would not, why would one not conform to the other? Uh, yeah, I mean, it's a government thing. It's, <laughs> it's too much paperwork to figure that yeah. out. It's yeah, I, I think, you know, FDA was obviously one of the first to come up with the whole medical device requirements um, and, and set their plan and then other countries amended as needed. Um, mm -hmm. I think both have their advantages. Um, I think with the, the rule based classification you know, in Europe or, or Canada, um, they provide a pretty good like workflow of if you have this, you're this, if you're this, you're this. Whereas FDA can be a little bit more of a guessing game um, with the product code based classification, right? So, mm -hmm. so do, do you almost see like the 510k process and then the Novo process as almost being the FDA's version of being 2A, 2B? Yeah, I think, you know, with de novo, you could be classified in any of the three. It really is just saying that you have a, a new technology that they haven't provided a, a code for and a classification. So um, that is something I think the FDA would address more proactively is, is trying to create more product codes rather than waiting for a company or a device manufacturer to propose something to be more proactive and say, Hey, we understand there's these digital therapeutics on the market. We should have an umbrella code that just covers all these, or we should have a code that covers this type of new technology and, and give manufacturers a path to work for rather than kind of having to go through the full de novo process. Um, I, I think that is something that could be improved is, is having a, a proactive approach to creating new product codes internally with the FDA that then companies can can look and use. And that has been done similar with the EUA process. They provided a, a lot of detail on digital therapeutics, 
obviously COVID diagnostics, masks, ventilators on, on what specifically you needed, what type of testing. Um, so they have, you know, have done this in the past. Um, and even the, the safety and performance pathway is hinted on this a little bit, but I think it's kind of gotten put on the, the back burner a little bit um, in relation to COVID and other things as well. Okay. Interesting. Um, well, great. Uh, Kyle, I don't have any more questions. I appreciate you being uh, patient with me <laughs> while I asked a, a hodgepodge there when we got into the MDR. Um, I know the initial intent was to talk about the ISO 13485 uh, transition here and the FDA. I think we covered that pretty well. Is there anything else in closing before we hop off here that uh, I missed that you wanted to chat about? No, I, I think we did a, a good job. I think cool. this is a lot of the questions we get from our clients as well, or what are the advantages of going to different markets? How does it affect our, our quality system and the work we need to do for testing and, and development? So um, something we, we help a lot of companies with, all different types of new technology as well. So, um, you know, interested to talk to you about it and as well as any, any potential companies out there that have these same questions on, on their device, their software, things like that. Yeah, awesome. So um, for those listening, uh, Kyle's uh, LinkedIn will be hyperlinked in the show notes, along with Rook's website. Um, so plenty of ways to to get a hold of Kyle and the team at Rook. Um, but uh, Kyle, hang on for one minute. We'll chat offline. But but thanks for so much. Thanks so much for your time today. And uh, we'll be talking soon. Got it. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the podcast. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and leave a review. If you need anything from the podcast, you can always contact us at info at Thanks for listening and have a great day.